Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, celebrating 120 years of providing medications, advice, and quality healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC-recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including flu, HPV, Tdap, MMR, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. They also administer vaccines indicated for older adults, including shingles for age 50 plus, RSV for age 60 plus, and pneumonia for age 65 plus. Employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at kinneydrugs.com. It's so much easier to make it big, make it humongous. People flock to us. They want it not to carry somebody else's slogan, you know, but to be in the puppet. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Sixty years ago, a troupe of performers toting large papier-mâché puppets and art painted on bedsheets made its first appearance in a protest march in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. This was the Bread and Puppet Theater, founded by Peter and Elka Schumann. In 1970, the Schumanns moved to Vermont, eventually purchasing a farm in Glover in the Northeast Kingdom, which has been the home of Bread and Puppet ever since. Over the course of its six decades, the oversized puppets and art of Bread and Puppet had become the iconic image of protest around the world. Today, Bread and Puppet is one of the longest-running nonprofit self-supporting theater companies in the United States. I first saw Bread and Puppet at protest marches in the 1980s. In the 1990s, I began making the trip to Glover to see the Domestic Resurrection Circus, which Bread and Puppet performed annually until 1998. These days, Bread and Puppet performs in Glover on summer weekends and tours the country during other times. In August, I spent an afternoon with Peter Schumann talking about his life and work and 60 years of Bread and Puppet. Peter is now 89 years old, his long white hair tumbling out from beneath his trademark hat. We sat in his house, a small wooden structure crammed with books and art. At the center of the house is a cast iron oven where he bakes bread. Peter has experienced some major life challenges in recent years. In 2021, Elka, his beloved wife of 63 years and the mother of his five children, died at the age of 85. This spring, Peter suffered two strokes. Miraculously, it has not stopped his frenetic life of art, protest, and performance. He continues to perform with Bread and Puppet each weekend. Peter Schumann was born in 1934 in Silesia, a region that was then occupied by Nazi Germany, but is now mostly in Poland. We began our conversation there. Take me back to the village where you grew up, where you started doing puppets, doing make baking bread. Um, tell me about where you grew up. Well, the, the first break was, was only five, uh, being born and five years old, and then my father had to move to another town because of uh, find a teaching job that would accept a socialist teacher. You know, that, that was a big job. I know, I, that was difficult. So anyway, so he found this thing in the vicinity of Breslau, which is this major capital of the East, the giant university, very important. 
and so on. Yeah, and then we had a little garden there by the house, had big climbing trees where we boys could climb uh, the hearts off. <laughs> yeah, no, that was good. And then, you know, this is all progressing into accelerating allied support of what we, we call them Christmas trees because the Allies bombarded cities by sprinkling the sky with fireworks and then the bombardment. So we all knew when there was fireworks and it means running for shelter. They were actually lighting up the ground so that they could see where to bomb. That's it. You're talking about the beginning of of World War II. Tell me about the coming of the Nazis in your community and in your life, what you recall of it. (laughs) Only in the marching of soldiers, because amongst my family friends, there wasn't any. So it was, for example, the students... Oh, my God, our favorite uncle was called Uncle Wucherfennig, which is a Jewish name. And he was our delight, a tall guy. There are these pictures of him. He tosses us in the air. <laughs> and he was drafted and killed very soon in the hmm. oncoming war. You are one of the uh, last people who can talk about what it was like to see the Nazis come in. What is the sound of fascism coming in? Fascism is, oh my God, how is that sound? Hooraying things. What else? I think the, the the wildest thing is the stomping of the of the you know the rhythmical stomping of the pizza. I don't know. I can't do it because it's a, a, a learned sit. What a step? What is it? I think it goes like this. Goose stepping. Yes, goose stepping. Right. Was that horrifying to see that kind of thing? And it just. Started in your community. You started. People started marching like this. No, I, I wasn't as. I I wouldn't say community because it didn't include the aunts and uncles. And so it was something. Yeah. In uniform, you know. But then they also did it into youngsters. You know, the the youngsters imitated the grown ups. You see, but luckily I was too young, so I wasn't in that thing yet. But my brother was, you know, doing that, yeah. How old your brother was in the Hitler Youth? Not in those years. He was too young then because I was five. He was eight then. So he would have, when we moved to Breslau, probably. And I don't remember he wasn't going away for any of that. So, but he must have been, yeah. And did he end up escaping with the family? Yeah. Yeah. And what year was it that your family left? 44, Christmas 44. That's when the bombardments took a hold of the whole Breslau area. This is the uh, Allied bombing. The Allied bombardments, yeah. And we heard the Russian tanks in the distance. Yeah. So that, that was also unmistakably big stuff coming on. 
Did you view the bombing as coming to save you or coming Not to hurt you? Not at all. It's just destroying us, you know. Yeah. I mean, they, and and then later on, you know, when we realized this, the bombardments, well, you know, we moved when we were uh, in, 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 what was it? Forty-seven. When we moved, when my father got that school job, we moved to Hannover. Hannover, that is another big industrial town in Saxony, which was big industries and totally destroyed, especially the working classes the big hieras and the, the Nazi style of Mussolini style, you know, like housing units that were built at that time, totally destroyed, full of women crawling through the rubble and cleaning bricks. There was a site at that time, but just chains and chains of women going through these things and cleaning bricks and making them into stacks for building something. <laughs> After World War II, the Schumann family moved around and finally landed in Munich. I asked Peter Schumann how he met Elke, the woman who would become his wife. He recounted how he was actually on his way to meet the famous German-Jewish philosopher Martin Buber when disaster struck, followed by serendipity. I want to give you a little... Uh, Another inside of my family, my nine, my knife, which was a giant accident that I had, and that was when my parents were in super distress about me, living in an unheated house in the winter time in Munich in somebody's garden house, and making nothing other than making wild music and. And no, nothing, no, nothing reasonable in their mind. And so my father happened to know Martin Buber, the philosopher, the guy who did all the collection of Hasidic tales and all that. I don't know if you remember. But he also was very well known for philosophical items like Thou and me and, and books like that. And my father... Knew that I was a fan of Buber. So my father used that because the fact that Buber had a teaching job at the university in Freiburg and I lived there. So my father made an, a meeting and an audience for Mr. Buber. And I went my bike again over excitedly to meet Mr. Buba in person. And I ran into a motorbike, ended up in the hospital with severe brain damage, a hand smashed in my head, and in the in that uh, state of being in the bed, in bed with that very big, severe 
brain injury, a friend brought Elka to meet me there because he told her that we are looking for dancers for our dance company. And that's it. And we got married. Basta. That's the story of meeting Elka. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of Mr. Boober, whom I never met, I met Elka. Peter and Elka Schumann married, and in 1961, now with two children, they moved to New York. Two years later, they would found Bread and Puppet Theater in the Lower East Side. I asked Peter why they moved to the U.S. Why did we come here? We didn't like America. The whole idea of going to America was a disgusting idea for us. It's capitalism, awful, you know. The, so I didn't want to be there. But then living on the Lower East Side, was not capitalism, was anti-capitalism, was doing things. We immediately started doing little street shows and things. And we had very good friends, made more and more purpose. We did big parading things. First it was just normal things, anti-red, anti-cop marches, uh, voter registration marches for mostly Puerto Ricans, that kind of thing to persuade people. And then, as you know, you know that '63 is when the war start became across to Americans, but it wasn't a, a military assistance for America brought into Southeastern. It was war. Very, very evidently so. Where did you get the idea to use puppets as a form of protest? Well, it's actually, when you think if it's so more persuasive, it's so much easier to make it big, make it humongous, to make it. We, we made, we had, people flocked to us. They wanted not to carry somebody else's slogan, you know, but to be in the puppets, you know, to get in an air attack where we had the women, oversized women, were bombarded by a shark giant airplane and downed and pulled up by skeletons prepared for the next attack. So it was much more interesting people to be in this kind of thing, barely choreographed, just quickly one hour preparation time before the parade started and then got but it worked so it was really improv improv very much yeah but I mean a plot was there a what could be seen as a choreography yeah but the main thing was it was gutsy in itself the normal parader was somebody who would go with a sandwich and sing and parade up a hole. And our team didn't do that. Said no, no sandwiches, no Coke bottle, no nothing. No, we want to do this real thing. We want to get this out out of our chest about this war. And people did that. They took to that very much. That's the puppet part of Bread and Puppet. Tell me about bread and why that's so important to what you do. 
that's uh, the importance in my growing up. It was the one reliable food source. So my my mother always saw to it that we knew where to find an, a, a mill where we can find some rye or something, and the, most of it was gleaning the, the fields and a little ho uh, coffee grinder at home. So the, the source of livelihood, my mother always said, baked seven loaves, one loaf for a day for our family. So, yeah, and she did it. And then in the village where we lived, there was a big style clay oven like I have it, where the whole village would line up one morning. He would, the brother, baker would be in charge of fire making, put all the loaves in. Everybody had their different stamp, how to lift their loaves so to recognize them. And he puts them in. Yeah, three hours later, people come pick up the loaves, and that's enough for one week, and then they do next week again. Your sourdough starter started 160 years ago, you told me. Mm -hmm. What do you know about its origins? No, I don't. I, I, I would have to fantasize. <laughs> must have been from Zeus or somebody else. <laughs> Some divinity, I'm sure. <laughs> no, sprinkle that down. <laughs> now, my sister who was equally interested in continuing what my mother taught us. This is the reliance on bread as the staple food. And so she also baked, and she made those acquaintances in Denmark, a near neighborhood of she got hold of this and then gave it to me when I was over there. Yeah. But then from then on you do it, you know, and then you just, so my look that whatever she gave this to me, this must have been before we moved us, that's probably when we in Goddard in early 70s, yeah, so that's now 50 years plus what that was, you know. And and that keeps going. In the meantime, I keep sourdoughs. I give out sourdoughs regularly to folks who come here, you know. And then they just need a lesson how to keeping up. It's not so easy keeping a sourdough alive and well. And it take, it's like a baby. You have to constantly check it, you know. It's not a thingy like it. Like you pack it away into a fridge and forget about it. No way. We're, we're pinballing around your life, and now I want to go to Vermont with you. Mm -hmm. What brought you to Vermont? Well, first time my wife had a, a job. She, as a student, as a high school student, she spent a year at the Putney School and met her favorite teacher there, Stefani Gerasi, Stefan Gerasi, and a wonderful guy, wonderful woman who, who was mentored to, to Fernanda Gerasi, who was a, a Spanish resistor. I shouldn't go into his history, but anyway, fantastic. And anyway, she, Stefan, was Stefan, was Elka's Russian student, she was Russian teacher, and 
She invited, she went on a sabbatical and she invited Elka as we were in the, in New York and she invited her for the sabbat, sabbatical Russian teachings. At the so Putney we School. At so Putney Elka school. began teaching at the Putney yeah, School. Right. And that brought 62. you to Vermont. Uh-huh. Yeah. We went there just for a year, then we went back to New York. Then we lived in New York, continued on the Lower East Side till 70. And in 70, a bunch of students and faculty from Goddard College got together and invited us to become theater and residents. So then we followed that instruction, and yeah. And <laughs> then, then we had Goddard gave us a beautiful little Kate farm, a wonderful little place with a big barn, you know, gorgeous. And had a studio in there, we did performances in there. It was terrific. So it's four years at Kate Farm and all these at the village event, fireman events, parading, not just Fourth of July, Harvest Parade, veterans, whatever, Thanksgiving, so many such things of that kind. But naturally, we are the had traveled, we traveled, we got invited. And so we actually, I would think those years, we pretty much made our living in our Europe connections. We went a lot to Italy, a lot to France, but also to Poland, to Czech Republic, Whenever we saved enough on the on the capitalist countries, we snuck into <laughs> the other countries. That was so good to, to make those connections. To go into go the to former, yeah, oh, yeah. not former at the at the time. This was the East, East Block. They called the it the East Block. Yeah. Tell me about um, Elka. Grew up in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, you grew up in what was Germany, now Poland. And you returned to the Soviet Union and to your home community. What was that like for the two of you, you and Elka? Well, this, this is so remarkable because there was no prehistory of that. We were invited to, there was a big summer, I believe, summer festival in Wroclaw, former Breslau, and we got invited there, and it was amazing, the response, and how we were huge fan clubbed. <laughs> it was it was very different from Western Europe. It was fantastic to go there. And after the shows, all these washerwomen, you know, all these cleaners, all these people, coat hangers of people, but they all came and wanted posters. <laughs> it was so unlike Europe. No separation of working class to and performing class and and and, and seat buying classes. Not at all, you know. Real amazing different. How the population was the proletariat so clearly. And this was uh, where you grew up was in in East Germany? Germany? Yeah. No, that's... Uh, it was in West Germany at that time. Yeah, at that time, yeah. Okay. 
Uh, but you're saying that in the former Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah, totally different from Western the culture, you know. The culture was, yeah, the culture was a proletarian culture and was meant to be so. Yeah. Not a high class, you know. But they were not, they didn't have freedom of movement. They, no, no. they were very tightly controlled by their government. Well, they were, and uh, well, they're tightly controlling. I would contradict because the tight complaint in the capitalist countries is in other means. I mean, in 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 in, in capitalist country, you have to make rent. You have to, you have, you have to. You, you, your school has been paid. Your all, all these things that were taken for granted in communist countries totally doesn't exist here. All these securities that people took for that's it. That's life. You know. Yeah, didn't exist. Look at what the Chinese did. You know, they saved hundreds of millions from starvation. But what they did in way of turning around it, and that they never got credit here on, on the Western part of what they did. Do you in think that there could be a bread and puppet in the former Eastern Bloc or China, a, a, a protest? theater troupe that protested its government? I would think so. You think so? Yeah. I would think so, yeah. And actually we have, I mean, there's so many fancy examples of that. When we traveled in Europe, most of our invitations were from communist uh, communities in the Toscana, Lots of them there, and in other areas in Calabria, where repeatedly we got invited by communist communities that were on communist, not on, you know, again and again. <laughs> what do you think they saw? in you and in Bread and Puppet that they wanted to invite? Well, well, the communalism, the egalitarianism, you know, the doing a thing instead of just talking things, making them, walking them out in the street, doing plausible narratives that people can easily understand, all of that, yeah. This is the 60th year of Bread and Puppet. What does that make you think? Wow, my God, so what are we doing the 61st year? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I should make a sarcastic remark. So I'm waiting for my third stroke and make longer cigars. No, it's just... Uh, no, it's good, but that doesn't mean that this is an establishment that can just continue. Continue, not at all. You know, the methodologies of what to, how to make art out of bed sheets and out of uh, clay and paper mache. We just used up our last bit of cornstarch for paper mache making last year. We bought half a ton of cornstarch. 30 years ago, and we made all these thousands of times passwords. 
paper mache Puppets from that. Yeah. And that's, yeah, and that's how it is. It's a garbage culture. So you go and collect the broomsticks, you do the, yeah. Bed sheets. Now I'm a bed sheet painter. You know, I take people give me their bed sheets and I paint them. I look carefully what's in the bed sheet and then I paint it. <laughs> How do you think Bread and Puppet has impacted our culture, the culture of protest, and just a culture generally? What has been its biggest no, contribution? I think, yeah, marching maybe, marching, parading, yeah. They out the they, they go into the outside instead of inside to bring uh, uh, issues into the open to go a little bit beyond just sloganeering in uh, explanatory spin, what do you call them sketches yeah to make it so yeah but the other big thing you know I should say is that we are living in the landscape, you know, and we are living in the landscape, in the landscape with the gardening and all that. But also, the audience is in the landscape. So, so the the audience cannot just see puppets, you know. The, the audience is forced to see the thunderstorms and the and the sunsets and the everything. You know that that that's part of what they see as the spectacle, and we always tell them, "Well, you don't like the puppets? Oh, just look up! You know, the big stack spectacle is coming just in the cumulus is there. You know, almost every hour. <laughs> Amazing. How did the little town of Glover, Vermont, become your home? By good luck, Erka's parents were looking for. You know, like people do when the retirement age comes, they're looking for something where to to have peace and harmony, it's called. <laughs> and uh, so they looked around, probably had Alka in mind, and they traveled around and they found this farm and Alka's mother, the Russian peasant woman, she took a Big liking to it right away when she saw it. She said, no, and, she, and, and her husband showed all kind of other stuff. And and she just said, This is it. This is. She came out of the point, pine, out, out of the sugar, sugar beach, went down here, saw it. She said, That's. And she was so right. So right. How has the work and performances of Bread and Puffet evolved? over these six decades. It used to be you had these big domestic resurrection mm. uh, performances and they were out in the field here in Glover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explain its evo it's, uh, the evolution. Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, it, I can give you the example of, for example, the bread baking. So for all these years over these, I've been baking bread, sir. When we had these big 40,000 people audiences, we had to bake five times a day on the big oven there, 200 loaves per baking. And we did that even in reparation in the, the Thursday, starting Thursday baking. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Saturday, pfft, continuous, with huge flour soda makings and grinding, grinding, grinding. And that 
still didn't prepare me, prepare me for what I found out only last year, took so many years, which is I started measuring the wood, I started measuring everything of what we're doing. And the, now when I bake, I don't know, I didn't show you, it's like two, three big trays of bread, these big loads. This takes me two five-gallon buckets of tine wood, like this, mm -hmm. and half an hour firing. Then I rake the embers over the brook back to get it warm, and then half a layer. So the total burning time prior to baking the bread is one hour, and I toast the loaves in there, close the door, seal it with a wet towel, and it comes out 22 hours later. And that's 22 all. hours this of later. baking. That's it. And this thing is still hot. There's still embers in there. <laughs> and this is all from two buckets of pine forest, which we get from our pine forest anyway, because there's always trees damaged by either lightning strike or storm coming in or whatever. Every loaf of bread comes out differently. Yeah, every loaf comes out. When you bite into your bread, how yeah. do you know it's perfect? <laughs> no, I'm anti-perfectionist. So you know anti-perfectionist. Perfectionist. <laughs> Why are you anti-perfectionist? Because yeah, there is no such thing as the perfect loop. There's is a variety of very, very perfect, close to perfect loops. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. No, no. Right now, I'm I'm very happy with, for example. It took me 30, 40 years for puppeteers to accept my rye bread. They wanted, I did mixed loaves. I made mixed loaves. I, had to, I traveled in China. I couldn't find rye. So I had to learn mixing my rye with wheat and so on. I learned that, and the puppeteers really liked that. So they, I did a lot of baking that manner with him. And now, finally, I have a team and and even the strangers who come and they agree, they agree, this is still the best result of all these bread pickings. That's it, the pumpernickel. <laughs> That's my favorite. Your pumpernickel <laughs> is something I can't even describe. Yeah, it is. It's 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 the chew, the taste, the smell. The, what you have, have to work in, in contribution of, of, of the probably inspiration for your saliva to really do more work, you know, all that. It's all of that, yeah. I want to talk about life now and how it's changed. And of course, the biggest change is the passing of Elka, your yeah. wife of 60-odd years. How many years were you married? Yeah, more than that. Let's see, yeah. We were, we were 21, I was 21, she was 20. So now she died at eight, shortly before 60, before 85, yeah, so 65 years, yeah. 65 years. Talk about how that has changed your life. Yeah, totally, I mean, we, 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 
we rough it tough, we make it rough it tough, we didn't have any any designs of how to make if income, how to be lucky, we were lucky, 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 we are old friends. When we came back from Putney, we looked for where could we live on the Lower East Side, and the friend said, oh yeah, here's, this is rent control, 28 dollars per month. 28 dollars for a family of seven, you know, <laughs> not so bad. You have five children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's that's how we lived till we moved to Vermont. And $28. Now when you go to that same block and you want it, it's 20 height, $2,800 yes. for that apartment. <laughs> that's <you know>? right. <laughs> and subdivide it. <laughs> yeah. No, we're pretty lucky, you know. The good luck plays a big part of all this. Not not design. Uh, designing, no, no. We went to and fro, we did this and that, yeah. But there's so much good luck. And that the kids stayed healthy, that we stayed healthy. A big influence was Elka's grandpa, Scott Nearing, Scott and Helen, who came right regularly here visiting. Helen helped the hell of a lot of the, the feeding people the bread and for, and for people that. who don't know who Scott and Helen Nearing uh, were, they yeah. were really giants. Real they had gurus. A, they of, were gurus. Explain. Of, yeah, really gurus for the. But back to the land thing, they did that, that thing in the 20s when he was fired from universities because he was a radical, was against First World War, all these things, you know. And and, and against satellation from, from Russia and China. He traveled to Russia and China illegally, all of that. He was a real uh, principalist, you know, really. And that was a terrific gardener and and back to the land person in excellence, really somebody who could throw people how to do it, you know. Harvested his, his on, on the coast of Maine, harvested the seed weeds to make their compost, you know. Oh, so many good tricks that he introduced to the people in the area who didn't know how to use the harvesters. Hmm. Yeah. Talk about life after Elka and how her passing has impacted you. Yeah, no, it's uh, not difficult. No, it's just, yeah, terrible. Yeah, just suicidal, trying to get out of that. Yeah, trying to find a way away without despair. Despairing a lot. It's okay. Yeah, just how it is. So, it is, so yeah. Yeah, it's a little downhill development. Naturally, yeah, still go. How do you console yourself? How do you? I don't. No, I mean, I have kids, I have grandkids. I, 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 and that I have company. But no, I'm also, yeah, suffering from loneliness, from despair, from low seeing any man has sense in what I'm doing. A lot. Yeah, that's all right. But goes away, it's just an individual lump, lump of a lump, a speck of dust, it's called. Speck of dust. <laughs> Does the work that you have created and the life that you've created, when I came here at lunch, 
you're surrounded by people. These are people who come here to make the productions on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Does any of that give you comfort? Naturally, a certain amount of comfort. But between the, the, the choreography, the directing, and all that stuff, that doesn't come close enough to real conversation or to real understanding of why you do things in life and at all. So that's that's uh, that's confined to special friendships and so very hard to come by by anybody. So by any standards, you know. What gives you the greatest comfort that gets you through the day and through the week? No. <laughs> Hard to say by somebody who's always overproductive. So I, 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 I cling to my productivity, so I need to. So I do, in, in, yeah, big, vast amounts of outputs, but I, that doesn't mean I believe everything I do at all. It's just, it's, it's a comfort to have to be busy producing, you know. The producing isn't isn't doesn't have in headlines or in in it doesn't have an oversight. It's it's a we call them possibilitarians, you know, people who go after things as they could be done that are possible done. Possibilitarians. Possibilitarians. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good translation of a book that. Musil, Robert Musil wrote after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that he called the man without qualities, the man ohne Eigenschaften. And in that he made, he invented an office of the soul. And in that office of the soul, they invented a new person called the Möglichkeitsmensch, the possibilitarian. <laughs> It's 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 pretty fancy thinking of this guy, of Miss Robert Mosil was a weirdo uh, living in the Austrian the high culture of Austria, and of uh, the this collapse of the Hungarian Empire, and had all the qualifications of being well read, well philosophized, and seeing what was needed there. So and he called it that, the Möglichkeitsmensch, the possibilitarian. And you think of yourself as a possibilitarian. Well, I have to try to preach people. I tell them, let's be <laughs> proletarians and possibilitarians. Okay. <laughs> so um, you mentioned to me that you had just had some strokes, three strokes. Two. When did this happen? Oh, just a few, one, I'll forget, the May or something like this, yeah, early early spring. A few months ago? Yeah, yeah. And what happened to you? Well, I said that one part of my body didn't obey. I, I tried to adapt myself, and I said, I said, please get up. And, I, and it didn't obey. It didn't, it just didn't want to get up. And then I went to the bathroom, and my daughter found me with uh, collapsed. And she took me to the car, told me to the hospital. She realized it was a stroke. 
And then, as I told you, you know, then I got out of it real good. In protest to the hospital, I hated it so much, and I wanted to get out of there. And I thought, if I could persuade the chief doctors, you know, that I'm shh, shh, and yeah, and and it seemed to work, and it worked, and they let me go. Well, how did you persuade yourself? To get out of the stroke, by the by, uh, teaching myself to speak as clearly as possible, by repeating myself, to saying it, to have answers to where they ask, because the hospital people are not on a very high level of questioning at all. The officers is the same thing, you know. This, yeah, what's your name? What's your age? What's your mother's name? Yeah, blah blah blah. All this blah 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 blah. That, that, that is very small vocabulary, you know, what you have to learn. So, and uh, yeah. you, 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 while you're in the hospital, within 24 hours, you taught yourself to speak. There. Yeah. You look and sound fine as we're sitting there yeah. in your house. <laughs> yeah, stutteringly nice. <laughs> fine. No, no, it's 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 good. It 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 worked. So I, I got out of the hospital, that's number one, bravo, so good. But then, yeah, naturally, then I saw my primary doctor, he, she designed, defined very bad, good, was very good person who helped me understand what happened and so on, yeah, it's good. So, Are there lingering effects for you? Other than this, no. So, okay, I know one, one thing you don't do anymore, you used to be the man on stilts. If you come this weekend, I will do something like that also. <laughs> I will be here this weekend. Are you still stilting? No, no, no. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> no, no. I don't think I want to see you on no, stilts no, no. Me at this neither. point. <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> I returned to see the bread and puppet pageant two days later. Halfway through the performance, four puppeteers holding long ropes raised a ladder in the center of the large grassy pasture. 89-year-old Peter Schumann, dressed in the troop's trademark white outfit, then climbed the vertical ladder about 15 feet into the air and blew a homemade trumpet as part of the performance. He remained perched on top of the ladder for about 10 minutes, seemingly defying gravity, periodically blowing his trumpet and directing the performers below. One of the puppeteers who held the ladder told me afterward that the other puppeteers tried to talk Peter out of doing this and pleaded with him to remain on the ground. But despite having two strokes just a few months ago, he would not change his artistic vision just to make others comfortable. In our conversation, Peter explained how aging and his strokes have affected his art. No, no, it's not, you know, the, my physical abilities are simply this nervous, nearly always producing, always running after things, and even painting, my, my bedsheet paintings is done very wildly, violently, throwing stuff stuff at the canvas and so on. And that's, yeah, keeps me going, do that. You are surrounded by young people who look at you as a mentor, as an icon. What wisdom would you share with them about yeah. dealing with a world 
on fire, dealing. Indeed. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, no. We, yeah, we teach anti-capitalism <coughs> as good as we can. And it's a candy. Anti-capitalism is the garbage of our world, the seriousness of the garbage, the series of consume, the seriousness of getting along with things, of how to use the material world in a decent way instead of in an indecent way, how to do things like they, they can all learn so many of simple methodologies of how to live simply, nothing. We, we don't go to art stores to art, art supplies. We go and do this and that. We, all of this can be invented and made, you know, from what you have, you know, sticks are available and whatever. We, we began this conversation talking about growing up in a community and then seeing the arrival of fascism, of Nazism. That's what this experience is right now. Right now. Yeah, very much so. Very Tell me. Much. Not just Europe. Look at the Green Party in Germany. It's become fascist. Terrible. Yeah. What do you see as the similarities today as you look around in America and in Europe and with your childhood? Yeah, it's horrible to see. Yeah. You, instead of a one what one should hope would be a greater sophistication in these ch choices of what cultural choices, what you do. So instead, it goes to this primitive word of, of strongman, uh, uh, mechanic strongman methodologies of what, how to solve problems. I take a look at what they do with this war making. And not that there's 300 or 800 American stations around the globe, but, you know, when I think of Assange, you know, okay, yeah, there he is. Yeah, in Australia, we uh, a new request for a State Department to deliver him to the punishers over here. Are you kidding me? Because he reveals you as war crimes, and for that, he needs to be go to miss. You're talking about Julian Assange. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. How concerned are you that America today could fall into fascism? Extremely so, yeah. And I, I mean, you know, okay, this is Trump country here, the Northeast Kingdom, very much so. The Trump Psalms will, will grow as we speak. And it's it's classical, uh, right the right wing, it's, uh, it's autonomous people, people who don't want to be told what to do and so on. And that's what dictators like and, and need this kind of support. On the other hand, uh, we have been exceptionally accepted from this by neighbors. Pretty astonishing, because it would have been so easy to get the brunt of it, putting 
little gasoline fire in the museum. Oh, it's so easy. That's the easiest thing in this world. If you want to punch somebody, you know, nothing like that. Nothing, you know. I, I shouldn't be proud of it because it can happen. But it is amazing that they, they, they neighborly mostly because Elka was here, because she was able to have good neighbors. I, I'm not, but she was. And it's, yeah, and you, you here, I mean, we never bothered taking the car out of the ignition, the, the key out of the ignition here in America, nothing at all. We, <laughs> when you stop in the, in the winter time and you run out of something or something goes wrong with your car, anybody will stop and help anybody. Not as, no single person goes by. Not here in the Northeast Kingdom. Typical Northerners, you know, want to be independent. Yeah, you have any, somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> 60 years, uh, Bread and Puppet has been around. What do you think is the future of Bread and Puppet? Yeah, this, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if there is an aftermath. There will be an aftermath, naturally, because there's so many objects now that, so they have to be dealt with. There have to be so many people who want to do it anyway. It doesn't mean it's the same. It can't be. It won't be. But, well, the only thing that can be transported in, in, in a reasonable way is the methodology. What do you do? How do you make art? What do you make it for? How is your sloganeering? How is your relationship of language and gossip? And, you know, how? How do you do that? People do that in, in various ways, bad and good. The circuses are a good example of that. And it's unforeseeable to say what to do after I put it in my conjugal graveyard there, yeah. when, when I add in there. The graveyard that Peter mentioned is a memorial village in a hilltop pine grove on the Bread and Puppet property, just above the grassy amphitheater where the weekly summer pageant is performed. Numerous sculptures and art installations serve as a kind of living memorial to the special friends and participants in Bread and Puppet over the years who have died. Peter's wife, Elka, is memorialized here beneath banners and wildflowers. I have a few last questions for Peter Schumann before we finish. What are you proudest of that you've accomplished on this earth? Mm. I don't know. I'm not a proud person. No, just oh, we went. What is today? It is Friday, so Thursday. Was it only yesterday, really? We went to the Pine Forest where all our relatives, friends, neighbors have their ashes over there, or plaques or whatever. And there were so many of these young interns there, there. It was so beautiful to see. And one neighbor of ours just died, and one of us read from her sons, what she, what he wrote about her, it was so gorgeous. And then he sang a song, 
And then we went to Elder's grave, grave and we sang another song. That people realize we don't just live and we live with the dead, the dead, all this part of our life, you know, extremely so. The advice from, we can hear when, what they would say, what Maisel, Mabel Denson would say, what George Denson, what Stefan Brecht would say, but it's all there, so easy to see. That's, that's a big advantage of having a pine forest and having a graveyard. And in Vermont, to be allowed to do that, you know, you can go, we buried Elka right in there, can be done, you know. Lots of people's ashes are there. Lots of names, plaques, even the casual acquaintances are there on the trees. You live with their spirits every day. Yeah, totally, yeah. We go every week, we go there, and we see whoever wants to come. Um, that's it, yeah. Needs to be a practice, normal practice of life. Like the Russians make little icons and candles in corners of homes and so on, yeah. One parting word of wisdom for the people who come here, or the people who come here seeking whatever the magic is of bread and puppet, what is a bit of wisdom you can share? <laughs> oh, yeah. And don't shut out the people who died dead. Include them into your what you work and do and your, your, your progress and your, your artwork and your visions. So they, they have a lot of advice, and we need them badly. See, these political situations demand that, that we include them, that we should see how they, what their opinions are. So, and you can do that very easy. Go down there. Let them speak. What does Elke tell you? Well, she would say, Mama mia, what's out? What is happening to America? Well, Peter Schumann, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Schumann is the founder of the Bread and Puppet Theater, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. 